Uh, there we go. That's a lot better news than what he had. Still sounds horrible. Yeah, yeah, you can. You surely heard what I said before. You're all just smiling. Uh, have you ever watched Forrest Gump when they pull out the cords and Gump finally delivers his speech? He says, that's all I have to say about that. He's just done this long speech and everyone cheers. I think people might do that for some ministers, you know. <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. Yes. Am I, am I good? All right, thank you, Wesley. Okay, so tonight we're going to be in James chapter 3. I was uh, asked to do um, a chapel for Maple Ridge Christian School on uh, James, but then I, because they're going through James, and then I, I backtracked the night before and changed my topic. Uh, but it was a good, uh, good chapel service. Some guy invited me to come away with the Maple Ridge students to... Uh, for spring break to be the, the, the teacher to Esperanza, wherever that is, no clue where that is. And uh, I'm so thankful I already had plans. Uh, <laughs> the days of going away with high school children, I pray, are long gone for me. Um, but I did suggest uh, Zach go. <laughs> so we're going to be in James chapter 3 and uh, look at the first five verses of James chapter 3. And maybe next time I preach in the evening, we'll finish up the rest of the section on the tongue and the use of it. So the title uh, there you see the ESV has Taming the Tongue, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for your mercy upon us as frail as we are, as weak as we are. We ask that you will strengthen these feeble souls and bodies to give us the desire to hear and learn and be changed by your word as it is faithfully preached, which we pray for now for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the major, uh, I would say, it's not a, a great surprise or a great insight into human nature, but one of the things that as, as I get older and, and see and he, hear more things, I, I realize just how uh, often it is the case that uh, our strengths can be our biggest weaknesses uh, in the way we're constituted. And that goes for many things. It can be uh, in your professional life, uh, something that you're very good at can actually prove to be your undoing. It can be uh, in your just personality and character traits. You can be especially good at something, and yet that can also be 
uh, your weakness. I've seen this uh, not only in work and in personalities, I've seen it in, in sports and uh, many other spheres of life. People's strengths tend to be their weaknesses. And we all probably have different areas of our life where we would be able to locate something and say, yeah, um, that's somewhere where I've been strong, but I've also got myself into trouble. One area we can all, and I mean all, say that our strength, so to speak, gets us into trouble is in the use of our tongue. No one here is exempt from the blessing that we're able to offer with our tongue, but conversely, the cursing that sometimes comes from our tongue and other vices. We have this weapon uh, as you have heard in the past, in times of war, a weapon of mass destruction. For a human being, our weapon of mass destruction is this tongue of ours. And what are we to do with it? Well, James has this section on the use of the tongue. And it's a rather large section in all of the issues that James deals with. Throughout his letter, this issue comes up uh, indirectly, directly. But here's an extended discourse on the nature of the tongue. And he begins actually by raising the issue through the discussion of teachers. Not many of you should become teachers. He doesn't say not any of you. He just says not many of you. And he's speaking to a Christian audience. He says, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Uh, when you take on a certain role in life, you can put yourself under a unique law that you weren't under before. Uh, someone who has uh, been promoted to a position in a company may find themselves with greater responsibilities because of the uh, promotion. And I know people who have actually said, I don't want to be promoted. I like my job the way I am. I don't want to be responsible. And perhaps there's some wisdom in that. I do not know. But what I do know is that, for example, some of you are uh, going to be getting married. Uh, I see my good friends, Bart and Heather. They're getting married, in case you didn't know. And uh, the bad news for Bart, if I may be uh, able to give a pre-wedding sermon, in case I forget to show up to the wedding, which Heather had I've spoken to Barb about on Friday night that you are 90% or so sure I'll be there. That's good. That's better than what I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> but when Bart becomes the husband of Heather, he is now under the law of being a husband. When you are a spouse to someone, you are placing yourself in a context where there are certain responsibilities that until that time you were not placed under. And when you become a teacher, for example, here, you are now placing yourself under a certain type of law whereby we are told you will be judged with greater strictness. So the judgment that we know will happen one day, teachers have, in a certain sense, the least to look forward to and the most to look forward to, depending upon whether they were faithful or not. Now, we're told that God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. 
God has appointed teachers, so it is good that there are teachers, but teachers need to realize that they will be judged with greater strictness. And in the first century, a rabbi had considerable, uh, shall we say, prestige. Not uh, many people actually were able to read. It was an oral culture, and stories were passed along, and their abilities to comprehend and remember uh, the oral stories was probably far greater than what we can conceive of in our predominantly reading culture. But those who could read were those who were able to be rabbis, teachers. They could look at the scriptures and instruct. And perhaps the case was that too many in the Christian church wanted to be teachers and they didn't have sufficient moral as well as intellectual qualifications. That is why Paul will say to Timothy, take heed, pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. The first is the moral, which he has outlined in 1 Timothy 3. The second is the intellectual, the teaching, the ability. And so James is saying, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He even places himself like Peter does when Peter writes to the elders. He says, as a fellow elder... James is saying, we will be judged with greater strictness. So, you want to go into the ministry, or perhaps you uh, are thinking, it would be nice if we carved into Mark's pulpit something nice, something inspiring, so that when he gets into the pulpit, you know, he feels inspired, and uh, several of you vote for, we would see Jesus. And then uh, one of you comes along and says, no, I think James 3, 1 would be good. Uh, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, for you'll be judged with greater strictness. And uh, while I don't think that's really a life verse, it is something you have to be careful. There is a greater strictness with greater responsibility. And this trickles down in society. A father in a household with a family has a greater responsibility due to the position he has been placed in that others do not. And that goes for every realm of living. Now, having said that, he does seem to move into the realm where there is application for all Christians. So he says in verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways. We all commit a variety of sins. Sometimes when we have the prayer of confession, there is a time of silence where you're able to confess your sins Do you think that we all confess exactly the same sins for that 30 seconds? Of course not. If we are even thinking about our specific sins, maybe we are uh, able to come up with a whole list of different sins. I remember even this morning I thought, Mark, you uh, need to be more diligent about certain things, right? That was just something that came to me. Maybe some of you thought about something else that uh, you were not doing well in. We all stumble in many ways. And I think we should dwell a little bit on that. We all, everyone here, I think, can listen to these words and remember that you all stumble in many ways. You don't just have one issue that's sort of creeping along with you the rest of your life. You all stumble in many ways. All of you have many different types of sins. You may be prone to certain sins, but there are still many 
not a few. But specifically, he makes the point, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. I have no doubt that James, at this point in his letter, is reflecting upon his life with his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has no one else as a reference point for this verse except the one who truly was a perfect man. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, who would that be? James's first thought is the Lord. He is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We don't focus first here on the person's speech But what I think we should focus in, in how someone has learned not to speak. This is something perhaps we we don't think about when we think about the tongue. But there is a strong emphasis in the Scriptures, not just in James, but in the Proverbs, upon people who have actually learned to control their bodies, that is, their tongues, by what they don't say. So before you look at the power of the tongue to say and unleash a fury of venom upon people, we have to consider that one of the great acts of wisdom in our life is actually learning how to speak in a way where we don't speak, where we don't say what is always on our mind, where we don't feel the need to say the truth and then say, well, I'm just speaking the truth. That doesn't necessarily get you out of jail. Hey, listen, brother, I'm sorry, but you need to hear this. This is the truth. Keeping control of your body, that is, your tongue, first probably involves not using it as much as you do. But it also then means using it wisely. So then notice the illustrations that James uses, and I think just as he was thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect man who is able to bridle, control his whole body, so he is looking at the way in which Jesus would have preached. And if you look at the way in which Jesus preached, he was the master of illustration. He was the one who he would be able to simply sometimes just look And he would draw something from what was visible for people to see in that culture. So he would say, for example, uh, consider the lilies. Or he would say, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was always driving at these vivid illustrations. And so James uses what are vivid illustrations to help us understand the power of the tongue. It's small, but it's mighty. So, for example, verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The thing I like about James's teaching, which is so reflective of our Lord's teaching, is that it is actually quite plain. I was converted by a South African preacher, and uh, he, he was by no means a perfect person. 
But I'll tell you something, you could bring in someone off the street, sit them down in the pew, and they would pretty much understand everything that he said. It was simple. James here is using simple illustrations. Our Lord used simple illustrations. Preaching should be simple. Not simplistic, but it should be simple. You should be able to understand what is being said. And I confess, maybe uh, if we have uh, a few shortcomings in our uh, tradition is that we can uh, act like it's a university fourth year lecture sometimes. Look at how simple it is. Now, notice what he uses. He uses the example of a horse. I don't know how many of you are, uh, uh, go on your Saturday mornings and wake up early and jump onto a horse and go riding around in the cool breeze of the air, but uh, if you've been near a horse, they are phenomenal, phenomenal creatures, and the power of a horse is really quite something. And when you see a horse in full motion, it's, uh, it's really unbelievable. I remember going to Cape Town and there were these horses that, uh, in the area where we live, there's a lot of horses in this place. And um, we go up and I says, oh, I'd like my children to go on the horse. And the person there kind of laughed at me like, oh, you think this is uh, something fun for your kids to get onto this horse and just go around. It's not a pony. This is a horse. And this thing could kill a child if it wanted to. The horses are powerful, powerful animals. And yet, and yet, if we put bits into the mouths of this ferocious animal, it will guide its whole body. Something so small, comparatively speaking, can guide the whole body of a horse. The same with a ship. The rudder, so small, comparatively speaking, it can guide wherever the ship goes, so also our tongues. These amazing bodies that we have with all of our organs, with our brain and with our muscles and with the vigor of youth that some of us still enjoy, you see this body and yet something so small can do so much good or so much damage and it is a tiny, tiny part of our body. Spurgeon makes the point as he reflects upon this, saying, Blessed is the man who has nothing good to say and refuses to be persuaded to say it. And that may be a little bit hard to uh, hear in the way he phrases it, but he says, If you have nothing good to say, blessed are you when you refuse to say nothing that was good. In other words, who has learned to control their tongue. Small things can direct large things, and the tongue has great power. So the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. If you were to think about, let's say, your marriage, uh, if you were to think about close relationships you once had that you no longer have, or you were to think of things that have broken down, would it not mostly be the case that it was the tongue that ruined the relationship? Would it not mostly be the case even for children who learn this at a young age that it is the tongue that is the biggest weapon at school that is used? Is it not the tongue that can bring devastation to families, to relationships? It is the tongue because 
These are words that are said, and when the words are said, there's a sense in which they can never be unsaid. Though they can be forgiven, they can never be unsaid. That is the power of the tongue. And the tongue is something that is small, but it has great energy. The tongue is relentless. You've ever been on a long walk, or maybe you've been on a long run, or you've had a hard day at work, and you come home, and your body is so tired, and you just want to sit down. You know that feeling where you just want to sit down, and uh, I'm sure we've all been there. And as tired as you can physically be, your tongue can still let loose with all sorts of words. It doesn't get tired. It is a restless evil at times. And it is something that is so hard to control. John Trapp, the Puritan, said, Evil tongues are the devil's shouts. Evil tongues are the devil's shouts. And you can find many people who will have uh, little quips to say about the tongue. Always keep your words soft and sweet because you may have to eat them. And the point is that our tongues are things that are quite scary. If you think about your body and you think about what scares other people, there might be someone in here who's really strong and mean and could go around picking people up and tossing them into bushes, but as I generally live my life, I don't see a whole lot of that. What is it that most scares us about people? It's the power of what they can say to us or about us. I confess, I don't, when I uh, finish preaching, go to the end and think, someone's going to tackle me and throw me into uh, the closet. But you do wonder, right? What can someone say? Our tongues are mischievous, they're powerful, they're restless, and they are capable of all sorts of evil. And some people don't really care about how they use their tongues. Winston Churchill was such a person. He said, in the course of my life, I have often had to eat my words. And I must confess that I've always found it a wholesome diet. Um, <laughs> some people actually don't really care. They've lost the sensitivity to what their tongue says. And they don't really care. A Christian is someone who has a growing sensitivity to the use, especially of their tongue, because the tongue is often the purest reflection of your heart. So the Christian cares. The Christian is someone who knows the power of the tongue for good or for ill. The Christian is the one who asks God for wisdom in how to best use it. The Christian is the one who never underestimates the power of the tongue. One of the theologians that I read, I don't have his name, but he talks about the different ways in which the evil tongue can cause trouble. He says, the evil tongue is the silent tongue. It is completely mute in matters of religion. It never speaks of God. So an evil tongue can actually be a tongue that doesn't say anything because it never praises God. The evil tongue is the earthly tongue. Some people talk nothing but of the world and things of the world. I said to my 
kids, you know, they talk to their friends on, uh, on their phone. And uh, my son, Josh, uh, you know, he, uh, he has friends. And I says, listen, if you're going to talk to any of these young ladies, young men, you talk to any of these young ladies, I just want to know, do you ever talk about the things of the Lord? That's not a, I'm not saying that's all you talk about and you just send Bible verses to each other, but I do want to know if there's ever a time and when you can talk about the Lord. If you never feel comfortable talking to a young lady or young man about the Lord, you have to reevaluate the nature of that relationship. The evil tongue is a censorious tongue. It's hypercritical. It's a slanderous tongue. It loves to say ill of others. It's an unclean tongue because of the uh, sexual innuendos and the cuss words that people say. And uh, one thing I've noticed is that at um, most of the kids I coach soccer with, um, they will just say, you know, what the, and they'll say a swear word after that. And uh, what the Christian kids do is they will say a different word that replaces the swear word. And it, I'm almost sort of like, well, really? Is, is that the best you can do? <laughs> uh, the tongue is something that we not just simply change a little word here and there to make ourselves feel better. It's something we bring under such control that we don't have the desire to want to curse. We don't have the desire for the tongue to want to do that. You stop the ill use of the tongue far before the tongue actually speaks. So yes, oh, a word is about to come out, but you change a letter or two is not really what I think the Scriptures are driving at. The evil tongue is a lying tongue. It's a flattering tongue because it seeks to control the other person by its flattery. The evil tongue is given to boasting. And James says it's a small member, but it boasts of great things. Now that's the negative side. I just want to conclude with the positive side of the tongue. And this is something that as Christians we need to focus on as how do we deal with the ill use of the tongue. Well, we don't deal with the ill use of the tongue merely by not speaking, but by sometimes not speaking, but also by speaking. You take your weakness and you make it a strength, coming back to my initial point. Your weakness may be your tongue. You need to make your tongue a strength. And Proverbs has a lot to say about that. But in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 21, we read, The lips of the righteous feed many. But fools die for lack of sense. The lips of the righteous are a blessing. Proverbs 12.25 Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. But a good word makes him glad. A good word. The tongue. You can make someone glad by a good word to that person. You can use your tongue for good not for ill. Proverbs 16.24 Gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. I've never thought about this because in the Scriptures there's two different places I really meditate on in terms of anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything with prayer and supplication. I say one of the answers to anxiety is prayer. And then also in Peter, he talks about uh, not to be anxious. Don't be anxious. 
But the context is God's mighty hand, God's powerful hand. We were considering this at Bible study on Tuesday last week, and we talked about how the power of God is a solution to our anxiety. You have no reason to be anxious because God is powerful. And if you are anxious, you should pray. But it just occurred to me that another solution to the problem of anxiety is not actually found in ourselves. It's actually found in the people that we associate with who are able to bless us with their words to us. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Anxiety weighs a man's heart down, but a good word makes him glad. Have you ever heard of that as a solution to your anxiety, to surround yourself with people who actually use their tongue well? I confess, I don't think I've ever heard that. But that's what the Scriptures are telling us. You can actually help people in quite remarkable ways by simply speaking well to them, by speaking kindly to them, graciously to them. You can lift up someone's spirit. I know there's not a whole lot of young people here today, but let me plead with you that if you are a young person and you're paying attention to the words I'm saying right now, please be very careful with your words towards other young people whether you're four, whether you're eight, whether you're 12, your words can have a very powerful effect. And what a glorious thing it would be to hear of how your words lifted someone's spirit or soul up or actually helped them with their anxiety. I wonder if people who are crippled by anxiety are crippled by a lack of gracious, godly people around them in their lives. And then finally, remember... Our Lord speaks to you and that He has not been silent. He has used His tongue, so to speak, to speak words of grace to you. As I was sitting preparing to come up to preach, I thought about something before I got up here and it was, if the Lord came back to talk to me right now, what would He say to me? And I thought, I wonder if the people sitting here would immediately think of something negative he would say to them or something positive he would say to them if you were to come and be in a back room and christ is there and he's able to speak to you what do you think he would say to you and if your mind immediately goes to the negative i think there's a problem there that's not christ's natural way it's not that he never has something to say to us it's that his primary way of speaking to us are words of graciousness grace is poured upon his lips and the words that God has for His people are almost invariably positive, gracious, kind words, beginning with salvation in Christ, but also all of the promises that are from the tongue of the Lord who loves His people and wants those promises and those gracious words to flow out of our own souls as those who've been gripped by them into the souls of others. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your words and pray. We pray that our words may be pleasing to you, but not just pleasing to you, pleasing to others as we learn how to use what by nature is a force of evil into a force for good. Help us to restrain our evil words and replace them with gracious words so that we may be more like our Savior. Amen.